Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I see that as I'm chatting away to you, you've just landed in sunny Cairns. What's happening for you up in that neck of the woods today? Uh, thanks, Richard. Good to be here. Uh, I've, I've flown in to attend a, a showing of a performance that we're doing this evening uh, as part of a, a program that we're running called Homegrown Opera, um, which is a project that draws stories from, from the community, which we then turn into operas. Fantastic. Um, and, and so is that a performance that tours around or is it uniquely only being performed in Cairns? Uh, at this stage, the, it's, a, it's a work in progress. So right. it's, this, this is, in fact, its first iteration. Um, so I'm going to see what the team's been working on for the last couple of weeks. Um, and based on, on you know, where, where we're at, we'll either invest more in the project or, or we'll, you know, acknowledge that it was a, a good process of exploration and, uh, you know, research and development and, and move on. And so, so this is they're performing, you know, obviously a, a particular piece of opera. And so, is that something that they discover and then they go, "Hey, Patrick, this is what we want to do," or is it something more that you say, "Look, I'd like you to, uh, you know, to flesh this out and let's see how we go." Yeah. So, the the structure of the project is that we send in a professional composer. Uh, and a couple of professional singers, and in this instance, uh, our associate artist Laura Hansford um, was kind of leading the project as the director um, slash libretto story developer. Uh, and so, first port of call is we we do a call out for stories from the community, and we received all manner of different stories. Um, uh, and then we, we choose which, which one we want to run with. And in this instance, it was with a, a woman who was a, a, an ANSET pilot um, all those years ago, uh, who uh, was flying to Cairns, but had to, to make an early landing, I think, in Townsville, um, because there was a cyclone coming. And so the story is about her landing the plane and then trying to make her way home to her family okay. um, in the midst of a cyclone, which I think there's an enormous operatic potential <laughs> in, in this narrative. So, uh, and, and yeah, so that's, that was the, the premise that they, and then they then working with members of the community drew out other stories about the, the experience of cyclones and what, you know, the, the responses people have, the way in pitch, the way in which people, um, you know, sort of, I guess the community strengthened, you know, in the face of extreme adversity and uh, so, and, and, and the story has emerged over, over a fortnight around those sort of ideas of adversity, community, survival. Uh, and I'm going to hear it for the first time tonight. It's just, it's, it's really, you know, this is its very first outing and it will be very rough. Um, but, but from what I, I gather from, from all reports, it's, there's lots of really rich material for us to potentially work with again, you know, to ah. continue, continue developing. 
That's excellent. And so is there a closed performance or are, are people from the public able to come along? No, pe pe people are invited. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we sent out. So this project is happening. Um, we have a very good relationship with the Tim Fairfax Family Foundation mm -hmm. and um, they, uh, you know, provide a, a lot of support to our regional programming and um, this year, as you know, as part of that that investment, we chose to do this a number of projects. One of which was kickstarting this this homegrown opera. Okay. Um, and we we did we've done one already on the Gold Coast with Bleach Festival, and then this this is its its second outing. Excellent. Well, I suppose we should probably, given that we're already into the podcast, to explain who you are. So, Patrick, uh, uh, tell us about your current professional responsibilities. Right, so I'm the CEO and Artistic Director of Opera Queensland, which might explain why I'm developing operas. If <laughs> <laughs> people could draw that long bow and make that uh, assumption, I suppose. And so Opera Queensland, uh, uh, give us a sort of a sense of the scope of the organisation and, uh, and a little bit of the history. Yeah, so we are one of the state's six major arts organisations and, and um, in being that we receive funding from both the state and federal government uh, on an annual basis. And uh, we have been around for 40 years. Uh, we celebrated our 40th anniversary last year and our remit is to provide opera and singing and tell we, we the way in which we describe ourselves is we, we are storytellers with song um and so we're you know an opera basically is any any story that can be sung or told with music uh and we do that in cupac uh we do three main stage shows a year in in cupac in the lyric theater the playhouse and uh the concert hall working there with the queensland symphony orchestra uh, and then we also take shows on the road. And in the last couple of years, we um, have started a, a new uh, project called the Festival of Outback Opera, which is a six day festival uh, that takes place in Winton and Longreach in May. Uh, and that's uh, the, the, the purpose of that really is to sort of take the, the, the majesty of opera to to the, the grand outback mm -hmm. skies and, 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 and horizons. And it's been an enormous success. Wow, that sounds fantastic. And, and in terms of the actual organisation, so how many, uh, how many people are there on the team? There's 26. Right. And yeah. so I've, I've, as you know, I've had quite an involvement with the symphony orchestra in the past. You know, the musicians are on staff, but I, so the performers... Are they, would you regard those as a member of your staff or they're more sort of brought in uh, on a performance by performance basis? Yeah, so so all our, our artists are project based. Um, we, you know, so I'm, I'm the CEO and artistic director. We have a head of music uh, and we have an associate artist and that, that, that forms our core uh, full-time artistic staff. Um, but around that there is it's sort of an, an ensemble of, of, of singers and musicians, repetitors, uh, conductors uh, who we work with regularly, um, who, who are uh, Brisbane based or, or Queensland based. Uh, and as, as much as we would love to have a full time chorus, our, our Opera Queensland chorus is, is casual. Um, that there's a pool of about 60 singers there who 
uh, work with us on our on our main stage productions and and other projects that we do. Uh, and we also have a, a, a really um, large community outreach program. So we we do a, we provide a lot of singing classes, but we also we go we've got a, a big big education program. And, you know, in the last year we've played to thirteen thousand school students across the state. Um, taking them uh, operas into primary and secondary schools uh, and, and and again do community outreach in, in regional Queensland uh, and that can be anywhere from uh, the Gold Coast to Kanamala to, to Cairns right. and Longreach. So we, we, we really do cover a very broad uh, area of the state. Okay, excellent. Well, let's come back to uh... Opera Queensland a little later in the conversation, but uh, why don't we go back and uh, Patrick just share a little bit with us about you know your early life, mum, dad, uh, where you were born, etc., and, and then let's have a, a chat through your career. Okay, so, I wasn't aware this is going to be a bit <laughs> psychoanalysis, but we're on the couch with Richard. That's um, right. We so I grew up in Sydney, uh, and I'm I. Uh, you know, family that uh, I'm the youngest of four children and in, grew up in a family where music was a very important part of uh, of the family. Well, you know, there, there was always music on somewhere, whether that was symphonic music that my parents were, were, were listening to um, or, or indeed in, in the 70s and 80s, it could have been Carly Simon or Cat Stevens on, on, the, uh, on the gramophone, on the record player. Um, and you know, then, then obviously, my my as the youngest, my older sisters had a big influence on my musical tastes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I eventually went to Sydney University, uh, where I majored in in English and fine arts, and but really spent most of my time in the drama society there. Um, uh, in fact, that's probably where, <laughs> where I spent the majority of all my time at university was was making plays and and being in. Uh, you know, sometimes acting, but you, that, that's not something that we, anyone wants to remember really. Uh, and and then from there, I went to NIDA and did the uh, director's course. Uh, and uh, from there, then ha- had a freelance career uh, working in, in theatre and opera, um, pretty much from the get go. And so, um, when you when you were a kid and you were at school. Was it? Had you always sort of thought that you wanted to pursue a career in the arts, or is that something that you know didn't develop until you're a bit older? No, no, always. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I thought I wanted to be an actor. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think like, like a lot of people, I think, uh, and and I and I I had a go at that at school, and had a lot of fun. You know, in school musicals, I went to a school that would do an annual musical, so often a GNS, because we would we would pair up with a sister school. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or uh, I was in a production of Oklahoma um, one one year, a production of Pinafore one year. Uh, and so, yeah, and, ha- you know, obviously had a ball as a, as a teenager doing that. And then when I got to university, got involved in, in the Sydney Uni Drama Society, SUDS, which uh, you know, has quite a history. You know, to people like uh, you know, from Jermaine Greer to to John Bell, Bell Shakespeare, um, Bruce Beresford. You know, really quite an extraordinary extraordinary lineage of people have been through there. And so, it was a really important part of the the sort of culture of of the campus, the the drama society. And and at, while I was there, there was also a very active cabaret society. Um, 
and so we we spent a lot of nights uh, in a in a space called the cellar, uh, which was underneath the Wentworth Building uh, on on campus, uh, and it you know it became our creative hub really, where we would put on you know all, all manner of edgy political theatre and decadent cabarets. Uh, yes, and that and that that was it was sort of there that I realised that. Uh, I, I, I think my direction lay as a director. Um, right. I, I, would, I would often be in plays, and I would, uh, I would want to be, uh, I would want to tell the director how things should be going. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. So they, uh, so you didn't think that you'd be a triple threat? Is that the right expression? I think, well, a triple <laughs> threat is is someone who can sing and act and dance. I think. Yeah. Right. Yes. No. <laughs> Fair enough. No, uh, I don't think I, I, I was a threat on any of those fields. No. Uh, well, no. I, I, I spent my uni days playing in dirty punk rock bands and drinking in the pubs. So it sounds like yours was much more productive than mine. And so, uh, and so off to NIDA. So NIDA, um, you know, in itself, uh, I mean, the reputation of NIDA in Australia is unparalleled in terms of within that, um, uh, you know, acting and, and directing space. I imagine to even get in there must have been quite challenging. Yeah, yes, I guess so. Um, before we move on, you've got to tell us the name of your punk band. You can't, you can't just drop that into the conversation. Uh, I was, I was, I was in a, a variety of bands. My one musical claim to fame is that in 1990 we won the Queensland Rock Awards and we beat Powderfinger. So, uh, <laughs> so that that band was called Leather Zen, and then we moved to Melbourne chasing a record deal. And I tell you what, we went from being a big fish in a very small pond, being Brisbane, to a tiny minnow in the music scene of Melbourne. And uh, anyway, it wasn't long before I rang mum and dad and said, look, I think I need to come back to uni and get a real job. <laughs> so, yes. So, NIDA. NIDA. Yeah. So there were six of us in the directing course, um, one of whom was Yaron Leifschitz, who is, you know, has become a dear friend and is, is obviously a colleague in Brisbane as mm -hmm. the artistic director of, of Circa. Um, uh, and, you know, it, it, it was a very, uh, you know, rich, um, privileged space, really. You know, we, we had an, an extraordinary resources um, in, in NIDA and the, the new building had only recently opened when I was there. That was in 1991. Um, not, so around about the same time you were struggling in Melbourne, um, looking for your for fame and fortune as a punk rocker. Uh, and uh, it was, I remember, I remember the, the director at the time, John Clark, talking about, because I don't know if it was myself or one, one of my colleagues saying, you know, the, the, the standard of these rehearsal rooms and the, and the facilities that we had available to us um, you know, we're often not going to be the standard that we would be working with as in independent theatre mm -hmm. around the country. And and he said, yes, he said he he was well aware of that, but he thought it was important that at you know at that stage, as we were learning and as we were developing our craft, that he that that we have the the facilities of such a standard that we would then want to go and and you know create those where, wherever we went. Which I I think was a you know it was a, it was actually a really smart um approach because it it does mean that you know you do learn to work to a to a level and to a level of professionalism that is is going to look after you 
and and I guess that you know you will raise others up to as well wherever you go. Mm. Um, and I think that is that that is a hallmark of of graduates of NIDA. You know that, that I, I always feel like when I get to work with 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 you know designers or technicians or, or you know performers that have come out of out of through NIDA, there, there is a, there is a, a level of professionalism and a level of expertise that is you know of the highest standards. Mm-hmm. And is that particular directing postgraduate qualification still offered there? Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's these days. I think it's now a master's. Right. Back then it was back then it was a, a, a postgraduate dip. You know. Right. And was is was, is the cohort much larger now? I imagine it must be. Yes. Uh, I, I've, a number of. I hope it's not that much more because there's just there's not that much work. If I, I, right. I don't, I, I've, to be honest, I don't know how many directors they put through on an annual basis. But I would have thought, you know, six to eight at the most. Uh-huh. Uh, and I would imagine it's a very different course to the one where, you know, we were very much focused on theatre. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really, I went back and taught there again, sort of in the early 2000s, and they had introduced sort of video directing. They they, they were collaborating with the Australian Film and Television School at that point. Um, and so, so the directors were also developing skills in, you know, in video and film. Uh, but we were we were solely focused on theatre when we were there. Right. Okay. And so you came out of that, and then you were saying that you just uh, moved into more of a freelancing type career. Yeah. So I, I started out, out as a freelancer, and, and and ironically, at the time, my my then brother in law was running a documentary film company, um, and I you know got some work with him. So I did actually end up making a few films and participating in 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 that that side of the industry for a while, but I, I was always drawn back to the theatre. Theatre was always my passion. Uh, I think I, I love the transience of it. I love the fact that, it, you know, I love the ephemerality of theatre, that, you know, that it only happens in that moment. Um, and there, I think there is a really interesting energy that comes mm-hmm. from, from that, mm-hmm. um, both in terms, in terms of what a performer and, you know, what, what, or what, a, what a, creative team has to produce because I'm, I'm I'm always fascinated about how you you create a space both in the rehearsal room but also in the live performance itself where there is always the potential for something different to happen because mm-hmm. that is that is what defines the live mm-hmm. I mean and obviously rehearsal is about setting setting the performance so that you know you can call your lighting cues at a particular time and you and your performers and stage crew have a have a map as to where the show is going to go, but but for me, what's most exciting about the theatre is is that tension between the fact that it is happening there and then, and anything could go horribly wrong. Mm. I, I, I imagine, in, in some respects, that must be like must be what it's like to be a chef, you know. Mm. And it, because I, I look at these chefs and the absolute chaos in these kitchens as they're trying to push these meals out and make sure everybody, but it's a similar art in the respect that it's created, it's eaten and then it's done. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Exactly. You know, and, and, and that, you know, you, you have to deliver the perfect meal um, and that, that meal will only ever have one, one outing mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, that, and that is it. And, and it's, this, you know, and, and you try, you try and you obviously every night you, you put on a show, you, you want it to be the perfect meal. It's funny you talk about the chef. One of, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about um, in the last little while is, 
in relation to opera is that sort of the the idea storytelling is to opera what what slow cooking is to food um because there is there is the you know the experience of opera is particularly in at, at this point in the history of world and the history of storytelling is it's opera takes time mm-hmm. uh, you know it, it is an art form in which you you have to you have to set aside at least a couple of hours to experience it. And I think, you know, in, in the hypermediated world that we're living in, that is quite an unusual space to be in. Mm. It's, it's, it's not a space that, that is often made available to us. And I think for me, that's one of the things that is, that is really interesting about opera. Um, and it, because it actually does create a space where you can really go, you know, do a deep dive into the emotional world of the characters and the story. And, and obviously, that's supported by the richness of a, of a, of a, of a full orchestra. Mm, mm. I understand exactly what you're saying. And your career has taken you to lots of interesting places around the world, uh, looking at your LinkedIn profile. So tell us a little bit about how all that unfolded. Yeah, well, well I, you, you're right. I've been very fortunate. I have had, I've had a great, great privilege of, of you know, travelling and, and presenting work in, in all manner of different places. So... Um, after about, uh, I guess, about 15 or so years working as a freelancer, um, maybe a little bit longer, I took on uh, the role of artistic director of a company called Legs on the Wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a physical theatre company that um, is based in Sydney. Uh, and its its primary focus is aerial performance. So, you know, fly, flying artists on the, end, on the ends of ropes. Uh, and you know that that meant that we when when i came along we did a lot of work so i did two big projects one one for the uh opening of the olympic games in london uh which was part of the cultural ceremonies it wasn't actually the opening performance on on the you know in the stadium but uh there is so the olympics always has a cultural olympiad around it mm-hmm. uh and in with the london olympics the the cultural olympiads contract was that it was going to happen all over the uk and i was involved in a in a work called the voyage which actually was the launch of the of the cultural olympiad in birmingham okay and uh we built a passenger liner to scale in the center of birmingham <laughs> which became our stage uh, and we collaborated with a, a, a dance company over there called Motion House and told this told this wonderful story about the uh, migration of people and sort of looking at the fact that Australia was, was an island country and England was an island country um, and looked at the idea and sort of sort of used the, the fact that in the Olympics people come from all over the world to the home country um, with with hopes and dreams, mm-hmm. uh, and you know that sort of in many respects is the, the story of migration. You know that people would come to Australia with hopes and dreams, or people would you know travel wherever they they choose to settle. And so we use use that as a, as, a, as a metaphor, and use the, use the passenger line as sort of as a metaphor for that for, for that idea of migration and trans, transition and transformation, um, and. It was a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. It took us two years to develop, uh, and we were working with a, a Spanish uh, motion capture three um, D animation team that, that sort of that brought the passenger liner to life um, through projection. And then there were 
there was a live choir, there was a brass band, there was a, an ensemble of performers from Australia and Legs on the Wall, ensemble of dancers, uh, and about 10,000 people a night came to see this show uh-huh. uh, when, when, we, when we opened it in the centre of Birmingham. Uh, and there was also that, I showed you, I've just, just remembered. Oh, no, then the next thing we did was, was, was a thing in the Commonwealth Games, which in Glasgow, so that we went from, London, went from London to Glasgow a couple of years later. And that was another another collaboration, um, and for, for reasons that, that remain a mystery to me today, that was the collaboration also with a Brazilian company. Which and Brazil is not part of the Commonwealth, but for some reason, <laughs> this company Lumi Teatro, uh, the, the 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 producer in Glasgow, um, chose to 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 bring them on board, which was wonderful. So I got to do some work in Brazil, um, which was a, a really extraordinary experience. Um, but I also, when I was at Legs on the Wall, I, I, I developed a new work with some Korean artists, South Korean artists, uh, and that was working with uh, a, a particular a, a group of Australian musicians who who had collaborated with Korean musicians, and uh, in particular a Pansori singer. And Pansori singing is uh, a, a, a form of improvised singing. Uh, traditional Korean improvised singing where the singer trains for many, many years by living under a waterfall okay. and screaming into the waterfall each morning and night to, to essentially just to shred their vocal cords and, and then rebuild them to enable them to sing in this extraordinary way. Um, and so we, we created this story that we're working with, with Il Dong, uh, Bai Il Dong was, was his name, and he is, you know, he's considered one of, you know, Korea's leading Pansori singers. Um, and it was based on a, on a traditional Korean myth um, called the Tale of Samul Nori. And Samul Nori are these four different traditional Korean instruments um, that basically every Korean grows up and learns to play in primary school. Uh, and the way that this story is told is that there is this big ash cloud that comes and covers the sun. Um, and the adults say to these, go to these children and say, um, we need to you to travel and gather the, the instruments from north, south, east and west, which the various mythological animals who live in these places, they have stolen the instruments because they're upset with us adults. Um, because we didn't look after the earth and we let this ash cloud fall. Um, hopefully the metaphor is, <laughs> is fairly <laughs> obvious. Um, and, and so the children go out and they, and they recover these four different instruments, the four instruments of the Samul Nori. One is, one is a, a horn, two, two drums, um, and, and this symbol, this, this high-pitched symbol, a quangri is called. And when they all play them together, it repels the ash monster and the sun emerges again. Uh-huh. Um, so we, we made that in, in 2013, 2014 and premiered it in, 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 in Korea in 2015 and then at the Sydney Opera House. Um, yeah, and it was, it, there was a certain <laughs> prescience to, to it. You know, it's, it's, uh, sadly, um, that story has only become more and more relevant over time. Mm, oh, definitely. So it must be so wonderful and fascinating and exciting to 
work with all of these different cultures and all of these different musical styles from all around the world and, you know, people screaming into a waterfall. So I hadn't heard about them before. It sounds to me a bit like Chinese, how they bind their feet. <laughs> but uh, what, what after such a, a varied and interesting career, how did you end up in Little Old Brisbane? Well, I, so I, you know, I didn't say that along the way I also ha had a career as a freelance opera director. So before I took on that job at Legs on the Wall, um, I had directed quite a few operas for Opera Australia and over in New Zealand as well for the National Opera Company over there. And um, that ties into back to my you know, early days when, when I you know, grew up in, the, in a family that loved music and also grew up singing in the, local, in the, in the school choir um, so I, I've, and, and playing classical guitar. I, I always had a very very strong connection to music and 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 its capacity i guess to transform the way we feel you know to put it simply i think you know there is a, that that power that music has to to change you uh almost unconsciously you know there's there's nothing quite like being at a concert or being in an opera and having that emotional response to the music and or and not being perhaps fully you know, able to reason as to why that, that that response is happening, and I think that's something I've always been drawn to. And you know, maybe it's because I'm a Catholic, I'm an ex-Catholic, and there's always a sense, <laughs> always a sense of mysticism that you brought up with as a Catholic. You know, you've just, you've, you've got to abandon yourself to the to the irrationality of um, faith, uh, and you know, maybe I, I transferred that to a to a great passion and 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 belief in the power of music, and and so that. You know, I chose to get into opera as a result. So I, I started working at Opera Australia in about 1996, worked on my first opera there, and, and very fortuitously, I was working as an assistant director on a production of an opera called Peleas and Melisande by Debussy, um, which is, you know, considered one of the defining op operas of, of the entire canon. Uh, it sort of, it, it, it was premiered in 1901 and, and really changed the way in which composers looked at opera as an art form. So, and, uh, you know, I was lucky to be working on it as an assistant director. And then about two weeks before we were due to go into rehearsal, I received a, a phone call one Sunday morning. And it's, it's you know, I, I, it's as vivid as, as, as today is. Um, uh, in, in back in those days, I didn't have a mobile phone in 1991. It was my, it was my landline that rang it about 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, and it was Moffat Oxenbold, who was the then artistic director of Opera Australia, and he shared with me that the director, um, who was based in London, had fallen ill mm. and wasn't going to be able to make it. And he asked me if I would be interested in directing the production. <laughs> it's, uh, it was 1998, I think, I think, I think not 1996. And... Uh, you know, I asked, I asked for a second to think about it and said, yeah, yes, I would, I would willingly take on, on that, you know, that, that, that offer and, and that, that privilege really. Um, and I think with the benefit of hindsight now, I, you know, I don't know if I would have jumped as willingly as I did had I known what a phenomenally complex and difficult opera this opera was. I mean, I kind of, I had some understanding of it, but you know, there's, there's a big difference between being the assistant director and being the director. And so over the period of two weeks, I got to, I, you know, I just immersed myself in, in the story and the production. 
and and that really was you know it was one of those moments that is life-changing you know I, I then so I got to direct my first opera you know on the main stage of the Sydney Opera House and it was well received and you know that launched me into a career as an opera director mm-hmm. um so uh you know I went on to direct a number of different operas after that time uh and uh so when, when you know and, and so that both as I said earlier for opera Australia and New Zealand opera and then then I then I then I moved into legs on the wall and, and spent some time doing that and then when I left legs I uh received an Australia Council fellowship which is I guess in many regards like a sabbatical for for a mid-career artist um uh and that gave me the opportunity that was sort of my, my focus of, of study then was was looking at sort of the discipline of extreme storytelling and that sort of came out of my experience of working in physical theater and the and, and the demands that those physical theater performers and, and you know, circus artists dancers place upon themselves um in the, you know in in the pursuit of telling a story but I, I also saw a lot of parallels between those those physical demands and the demands of opera singers mm-hmm. which is also you know a highly demanding art form in terms of the way in which um the the the, the physical pressures that are placed on opera performers both not not only vocally but physically you know to carry it to carry the two hours story two three hour story of an opera um so yeah i spent i i, I was very fortunate to to spend two years doing sort of immersing myself in research around that. And at the end of that time, I was invited to direct a production for Seattle Opera. Uh, that's in 2017. And um, and in that same year, the role of artistic director for Opera Queensland came up. And, I, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to be given, you know, to be given the opportunity to take that on. Uh, and that's where I've been for the last five years in 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 Brisbane, uh, running Opera Queensland, which uh, has been, you know, one of, one of the great great challenges, um, not not only for for the artistic pursuits that that you know that and and, and demands that come with running an opera company, but obviously these last five years have also included. Uh, an international pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was just thinking, you, you, you certainly uh, lived in it uh, at the right time if you wanted an exciting uh, uh, CEO uh, gig because, uh, you know, uh, I've interviewed and I work a lot with different performing arts uh, organisations and, uh, you know, I've had the uh, the CEO of QPAC on and the CEO of Circa on and, and a whole bunch of people. And I mean, that was just such an incredible period for you guys because of the lack of ability to actually practice your craft. But, but now that we're sort of through that, you know, when you're looking at it, the future for Opera Queensland, you know, what are you excited about? Yeah, it's a it's a really it's a really good question. What we've been fortunate, and, and yes, you know, we had to shut down in twenty twenty with the rest of the world, but then you know, because of the way in which things unfolded in twenty twenty one, we were actually still able to to do 
So last year, we, you know, we, we got to do a number of our shows um, and in through doing that, you know, have sort of were able to maintain the momentum. Uh, and one of the things that we did was the Festival of Outback Opera, um, which was an, you know, an instant sellout last year. So we, you know, fi figuring that there's obviously something going on there. We did it again this year and we, and again, you know, you, you, you couldn't get a ticket. Um, and if anyone is listening to this and is interested in the Festival of Outback Opera, I strongly encourage you to go online to our website and, and register because um, we launched our 2023 season and, and, and the announcement that the festival would be happening again uh, next year. And once again, a phenomenal uptake of registrations for people wanting to, you know, be 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 on the ground when it happens next year in May. Mm -hmm. um, so and sort of, I, I guess I'm really excited around the the potential that that festival has to become uh, not only a national uh, uh, nationally significant cultural event, but potentially an internationally significant cultural event. Because I, you know, I think there, you know, despite the challenges of the pandemic, I think there is. Uh, you know, there, there is a strong interest and fascination, uh, you, you know, only aided by the announcement of the Olympics um, in Queensland as a destination and, and in people wanting experiences that marry culture and the environment. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and I, I, I genuinely believe that if we are going to you know, find a way through the various challenges that we are facing, not only not only um, in you know in the wake of this pandemic, but also uh, in the midst of this climate challenge. It is going to the, 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 I I think the arts are going to play a really important role in that in terms of not only the stories we tell, but the way but but as a forum for exploring ideas and bringing people together to you know for me the one of the great things about the arts is it, it, it creates a space for us to explore our common humanity and mm -hmm. if we're not if you know if, if part of that conversation and if part of that that, that awareness of, of of our connectedness is not amplified as a result of the challenges we're facing from the climate um, and, and the various you know pressures that are emerging uh, you know, it's, it would seem on a daily basis. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, that, that the arts have a really important role to play in, in you know, not in, in, in precipitating that conversation, in furthering that conversation, and in potentially, you know, creating a space where those ideas can be explored. Perhaps not even not not even directly, but indirectly. You know, so what does it mean to go and participate in a in in a festival of outback opera, um, in the midst of an environment like so? So when we were there in twenty one, it was a desert space. It was a desert scape. You know, everywhere you looked was brown and parched, and um, it had its own beauty. When we were there this year, it was lush and green. Mm. Of course, for the past. Um, you know, a few months that they had experienced rains, the likes of which they hadn't experienced in, in decades. Uh, and that in turn precipitated conversations amongst us all about um, the nature of the environment and the, and the fact that, you know, 
that, that the world is changing in a, in a really significant way. And so I, I think I think these these gatherings, these meeting places are, are you know are going to become important reference points for us and mm. and, and, and sites of um, of you know of, of reflection, as I said earlier, and yeah, and, and an opportunity. But but within that, I think we also have to celebrate and acknowledge the wonder of what we do as artists as well and the importance that that has in um you know allow allowing us to reflect you know creating a space for reflection mm -hmm. and, and i'm also interested patrick you know you've gone from directing large productions and you know large operas and and now actually being the CEO of an organisation, what, what would you say are some of the leadership skills that are quite, you know, transferable? And, and what have you found, you know, has really been the difference for you as a CEO of a business rather than, you know, the within the microcosm of uh, performance, shall we say? Yeah, there's, I, think that, I think there is a really interesting tension between the practice of being an artistic director and the practice of and, and, and the daily practice of being a CEO, you know, the, the, the rehearsal room is a space where you have to create an openness and a vulnerability for people to explore, to, to, to go into their deepest, um, uh, most creative responsive state. Um, and, you have to make decisions in the nature in the in the process of creating a show, but the role of the CEO is is off. You know, you you have to make decisions on a daily basis. Um, you know, whether it be about the, you know the bottom line, whether it be about the the, the way in which the, you know strategic decisions about the, the the development of the organization and the and the direction that you want the organization to take. Um, and but you, you're doing that with a group of people, you know, and, and so in Opera Queensland's place is 20, and you want all of those people to feel supported and to feel like they have the ownership and the capacity to contribute in the same way that you want your, your room full of artists to feel supported and feel like they have the capacity to contribute. Uh, and they're two quite different spaces because, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, 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 the daily decision-making processes of running, you know, running a business, um, uh, you know, there, 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 is a, there, is, there is a certain f finality to them on one level. There is a certain sense of you, you, the outcomes are clear. You know if you spend this much money, you're, it is going to lead to these outcomes and you, and you can calculate the risk that, that those um, decisions are going to have. And in 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 a, in a different way, the the risk that you enter into as an artistic director is not really fulfilled until you get before an audience, because it's not until you have that contract between the performance, between the work of art and the audience, that you fully understand the risk. But you want to, you you want the for me, I want the people involved. In the in the in the business opera in the operational side of Opera Queensland, to feel like they have the same support and the capacity to think creatively, to think in a way um, that is conscious of the risk, 
but also in a way that they are supported to be able to make decisions where the, where the where those decisions are clearly informed and in which the risk is clearly understood does that make does that make sense yeah look at uh, you know from somebody sitting on the outside trying to see a person being able to keep a foot in each of those camps you know it adds an extra nuance or challenge to what is already a uh, a very challenging job so i'm uh, i'm quite a uh, fascinated you know, by people such as yourself who have been able to uh, straddle that divide successfully, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, so far, so good. Very good. And Patrick, uh, before we let you go, because I'm sure you've got a busy afternoon preparing for your event tonight. So uh, when you're not at work, what are the sort of things that you love to do uh, to, you know, keep the petrol tank full? I know that you have a, a passion, a passion for musicals, but apart from that... <laughs> <laughs> You're stirring the pot in there, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not going to take that bait. Uh, <laughs> um, what, what do I do when I'm not at work? Uh, I I, li I, tr I like to read as much as I possibly can. I mm -hmm. think. Um, you know, there is there is an imaginative space that you enter into when you're reading um, that I find really enriching. Uh, and not only not only, you know, management articles and books on on leadership, um, but but also fiction and, and you know, going into uh, those imaginative spaces, which I think are really important part of you know being a good leader i think i think part of part of being a leader is about being able to imagine yourself into other people's situations and, sure. and for me uh you know fiction is a space in which you can do that mm. what's your uh what's your genre of choice uh i oh, just just you know a, a a good i love a good story you know? right yeah I'm, I'm not like i'm not into um you know, crime drama or sci-fi or anything like that. I just, I just love a really well-told story. Uh -huh. um, uh, so, okay, so reading, uh, reading, obviously music. You know, or, or any opportunity to go and experience music making of any kind, I will, uh -huh. I will take up. And I, and I, you know, I have a very eclectic taste when it comes to music. So I'm constantly looking for new music. Uh -huh. um, uh, and and my family uh, would be you know and spending time. I've got a I've got an eighteen year old son um, who's just turned eighteen and is about to leave school. And um, he lives in Sydney with with my partner, his mother. Um, so you know I've I've led a, a life between Sydney and Brisbane, and that that obviously was quite tricky when the, the borders were closed. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, I would. I, you know, the, the, as much quality time as I can spend with with my family is is really important as well. We one of the things that we love to do together is um, walk in the bush, and that okay. I think that is my my great restorative um, space is 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 spending time in nature. Wonderful. Yeah, well, look, like there's some great bushwalks to do up around Cairns if you have the time, but I don't think you probably do this visit. <laughs> Anyway, Patrick, look, I really appreciate your time today. It was a great conversation. Uh, lovely to learn more about your career and about opera and opera Queensland. Uh, I, I see 
you need to tie into your regional, perhaps the uh, the Queensland version of Burning Man. If you think you could fit fit something like that in, that could be your next endeavour. I quite like I quite like the idea of. I don't know if we can if we need to be burning effigies given the whole conversation around climate change, but. <laughs> you know, so, you know, uh, you know, that I'd love to go just to to experience you know the, the fact that it's there and it's consumed and then it's gone and uh, yeah. yeah so uh, maybe a, a collaboration with Opera Queensland that could be quite exciting. That is quite exciting. We're we're, we're talking about taking our, our touring show um, Are You Lonesome Tonight, which is the show we created, which is about where opera and country music meet. Okay. We, and we want to take that over to South by Southwest over in in um, Texas. Uh, so maybe we'll stop off at Burning Man on the way. Fantastic. Well, I might have to might have to tag along on that trip. All right, Patrick. <laughs> have a wonderful evening at your event. Good luck. Uh, what do they say? Break a leg. Break a leg. Uh, which I only recently learned means have a bow. Yeah. Right. So I always I, I always thought it was you know. It was kind of this facetious, you know, don't break your leg. But apparently, yes. it is when you're bowing to take the applause, you bend, you break your leg. Of course, of course. <laughs> thank you very much. I, 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 someone may have told me that once, but you, thank you for refreshing that that idea. That's it's a beautiful idea. Excellent. Well, okay, Patrick. Thanks again. Have a great afternoon. Thanks, Richard. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for joining us on the Arate podcast with Richard Triggs. If you'd like a free copy of Richard Triggs' book, Uncover the Hidden Job Market, How to Find and Win Your Next Senior Executive Role, please visit uncovertheHiddenJobMarket.com to register your details. The Arate podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air podcast network.